Whatever compass point or heading you look at, North by Northwest points to one of the best and most influential spy movies of all times. We're going to look at several unique elements that really stand out. Hi, this is Tom Pizzotto. And Dan Silvestri. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Join us now on our podcast show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, as we set out on a journey to crack one of the best spy movies of all times, North by Northwest. Yeah, Tom, North by Northwest is one of the most significant and influential spy movies ever made. So, we won't rush through this one, but we'll split our podcast into two parts. In this part one, we'll get through roughly half the movie. Then we'll finish it off with North by Northwest part two. So, here we go with part one. Tom and I are remote today because of the shelter-at-home orders for the coronavirus issues around the world. So, here in Illinois, we have a shelter-at-home rule. And so Tom is remote, and I'm remote, and we're recording instead of in our studio uh, in two different places. So if it sounds a little bit different, that's why, but here we go. Okay, Dan, this topic for today is on North by Northwest. But before we get there, I wanted to mention a play I saw the other day based on another Alfred Hitchcock movie. Now, last year we did a podcast, The 39 Steps. Yeah. And it's actually our third most popular podcast we've we've released and i'd known they made it into a stage play but i never had the opportunity to see it i mean this thing actually came out in 2005 it won an olivier award for the best comedy its first run on broadway was 2008 and you know i go to a lot of of plays dan and i finally got to this one so we we went to this thing and it's actually a reenactment of the entirety of the movie on stage but they've made some callbacks to other hitchcock films but what you said comedy Yes, it's a comedy. Okay, right? and I'll get there. So they make some they make some fun callbacks to other Hitchcock movies, whether they're you know lines from other movies or some action that happens. But where it gets really interesting is they do the whole thing with only four actors. Oh, you wow. have one person playing Hannah, and then you have one actress plays the three uh, lead women roles, hmm. and then two actors play everybody else in the movie in the that were in the movie on stage. And you'll have a scene where they're actually with hats and different costume stuff on stage changing <laughs> who the, who their voice is. It might be they might have a conversation amongst themselves with two different characters. So I make this line with this hat on and then boom, the next line, I've got a, a different hat on. And it's really hilarious. I was actually I was like, OK, we got to see this thing because I want I want to see it. And I was like amazed at how fun it was. But it, it's it's a comedy but it's really the, pretty much the script of the 39 steps, but done a little bit differently. And so All if right. you do get a chance to see this thing, if it's at a local theater, I strongly encourage you to do and it. And it's just called the 39 steps, just like the movie, it, right? Well, it depends. Okay. Um, they've done little different adaptations of them. A lot of times the word the is no longer there. It's just mm. 39 steps. Okay. I don't know if they ran into some legal issue or whatever. If you do get a chance to uh, see that, I would strongly recommend it. I actually wish more people would do that with some of these Hitchcock things. I know in 2015, they actually did a stage production of North by Northwest in Australia, but I haven't seen it anywhere else or any references to it since. So I I imagine that was just some theater troupe that had some fun with it. So, you know, North by Northwest is on most top spy movie lists. So, So set your GPS to North by Northwest, and here we go. Uh, Dan, there actually is no direction on a compass called North by Northwest. That's true. Northwest by North exists, but North by Northwest doesn't. There's another podcast we've we've done called Q Planes. 
on the movie The Q Planes, and they have a line in there about South by Southwest, and that one doesn't exist either. Yeah. So I think I, the, I the, the original concept here was that he, you know, he's in New York, and he's going to leave, and he's going to go mostly west but north to South Dakota-ish. Now, the original, though, draft, I believe, Hitchcock's draft, he was going to Alaska, and they switched it to Mount right. Rushmore in South Dakota. So, anyway, all right. Well, the, well, and Alaska definitely would have been north and northwest. Yeah. I'm not so sure there's much north movement going from New York. It's almost a straight – it's a little bit up, but not yeah. much. I think the original draft was, it was originally going to be called a northwesterly direction. Yeah. No, it's what – like, hey, north by northwest sounds a lot better. I don't care if it's not yeah. a compass point. So <laughs> – so this is directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, James Mason, and Martin Landau. There's no way this movie will ever head south. That's a really good cast. We like Hitchcock's spy films, I mean, so much that this is our third classic of his. Joining our podcast, The 39 Steps that Tom mentioned, and Secret Agent 1936. You can see that Hitchcock borrows from The 39 Steps and Secret Agent, and even The Lady Vanishes, which is a 1938 Hitchcock-directed film, especially in one of the main settings being a fugitive or mysterious person aboard a train. Oh, my God, yeah, spies on yeah, a train. <laughs> so, Dan, when we were talking about this, you mentioned The Lady Vanishes, yeah. and I'd never seen it, and so I watched it, and it was really entertaining. And there are actually multiple releases of that uh, through the years. Yeah, it's so. a pretty good movie. So North, yeah. North by Northwest is a long movie. It's two hours and 15 minutes about. But it's Let, certainly... Let's see if our podcast it. is going to be that long. <laughs> yeah. We're going to try to do this in under five hours. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, if you're new to Hitchcock, we think North by Northwest has all the Hitchcockian elements that you could want. And so this is a great film to dive into if you want to get into Hitchcock. And there are a lot of James Bond elements to this movie like a crafty villain who is nonetheless charming, kind of like Sanchez in License to Kill. There's spies, there's espionage, there's elaborate sets, some gorgeous sets, a quick-witted main character who quips like Bond in, in the films. So this one is fun. It's There's international espionage and humor in this film, which kind of made it unique for the time. So there is well, some humor you, here. You, but you, you missed one of the best parts. There's a lot of erotic or it's oh, yeah. suge suggestive conversation yeah. between the two lead characters yeah, it, that it, had a really Bond yeah. kind of feels a little like this. And in you know, Bond, there's a lot of double entendre kind of things, you know, where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, it has two meanings. But <laughs> they're pretty straight out here. Yeah, there's so some of these. We're going to get into some not, of this stuff. Yeah, not really a need for the two, yeah. two meanings on some of these. Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock just had a tremendous way of, of creating this, this suspense and out of simple scenes, too. So, much like the innocent Mr. Hanny in The 39 Steps, which many consider the very first spy movie, Roger Thornhill, who's played here by Cary Grant, is a Madison Avenue, New York advertising exec who becomes embroiled in an international spy plot, of course, by accident. Kind of yeah, like... absolutely by accident. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you got to keep in mind that this film was released in 1959. So Ian Fleming had been writing Bond novels since 1953, but no Bond films were released until 1962, Dr. No. And so we'll look at which influenced the other. 
1959, Ian Fleming had published Casino Royale, Live and Let Die, Moonraker, Diamonds Are Forever, From Russia with Love and Dr. No, and Goldfinger in, in 1959 itself. So, but you're still three years before any Bond Eon production film comes out in 1962. So this whole intrigue of North by Northwest is very Bond-like. And Roger Thornhill is amidst international spies and spies from the U.S. services, probably the CIA, or as the professor, played by Leo G. Carroll, who's great, says, uh, some part of the alphabet or something like that. He says something like that. So you mentioned the fact that the Ian Fleming novels, the Ian uh, movies, and this movie kind of all interlaced in terms of timing. Yeah. There was an article in 1990 in The Guardian, and John Patterson says North by Northwest has been called the first James Bond movie. Huh. Um, and, you know, the similarities are evidenced. He goes on to say Goldfinger, the first truly ridiculous Bond novel, <laughs> would perfect the North by Northwest style template from which the series could barely deviate until Daniel Craig. Oh, oh, that's an interesting quote. That's yeah, pretty cool. Because they, they really are. This does feel a lot like what we know as a Bond movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it does. And I love this film. Thornhill here, we'll go back to it now. Thornhill is kidnapped as he is joining friends and a businessman for cocktails. It looked like they're ordering Gibsons to me yeah. at, the <laughs> at the posh oak room. Yeah, uh, now that, that actually, the oak room actually was the real restaurant in the Plaza Hotel in New York. So they filmed some of this mm -hmm. in the plaza. Thornhall walks across the lobby. That actually is the plaza. Yeah. When he goes into the Oak Room, that's actually a set. And they did this set up big time. I mean, they have the, the Oak Room had these murals on the walls, and they duplicated the murals. So they, that's actually a set that you're looking at. But it looks a lot like what the Oak Room used to look like. Yeah. This the sets the sets are fantastic. Actually, uh, I, every everyone you see in this movie, the sets are really pretty damn good. And well, and, and when we get to the Mount Rushmore part of this, part of that was filmed at Mount Rushmore and part of it wasn't. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, I mean, right. even that kind of a set is yeah. just amazing. Yeah. So, anyway, he's having this Gibson, it looks like, and these two, two men acting on behalf of their evil boss, Philip Van Damme, who's played by James Mason, who's always terrific, right? Absolutely. They approach Thornhill as he's about to send a telegram to his mother in the lobby of the hotel just outside the bar. At gunpoint, they take him to a waiting car, convinced he is Kaplan, a government agent who's on their trail. But yeah, so, th so this was actually a case of mistaken identity. Yeah. Right, so Thornhill called the restaurant steward over just as a page came in for this Kaplan guy, and the henchman mistakenly just thought that Thornhill was answering the page for Kaplan. So that's how he gets kind of sucked into this thing. Yeah, and if uh, you listen, and I had to go back uh, three times because once I noticed it, I thought, oh, okay. They page George Kaplan oh, yeah. three or four times. You hear it, but it's kind of like, well, Cary Grant, uh, like Thornhill is talking to his colleagues, and so you're and not paying attention to And the page is behind that. him yeah. looking the other way in the restaurant. Yeah, but you hear this over the loudspeaker, right. and you're not paying attention in the beginning. So this is something you want to look for when you're watching the movie at this particular scene. Listen for the page of George Kaplan, and it's literally three or four times they do it, and it becomes clearer and clearer right before he stands up that they're paging George Kaplan. Here's a cut of that clip, so listen carefully. 
A wet paint and no telephone yet. George. Perhaps if I sent you a telegram. Mr. George Kaplan. Boy. Kaplan. So yeah, and then he turns to the steward it. and wants to send a telegram. Yeah. So. so, so anyway, they're out. They got him at gunpoint. They're taking him outside, and when they get him in the car, this is really one of the first points we see an influence on a future Bond movie. Honor Majesty's Secret Service in 1969. Here, Thornhill is approached by two thugs, one with a gun, and stuffed in the middle back seat in a car between the two goons, Valerian and Lich, I think, right? Yep. Well, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce L-I-C-H-T, but yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Exactly like... It could be licked. Yeah, licked. It could be licked. Licked. Yeah. Exactly like Bond is on Her Majesty's Secret Service when Draco's goons come to extract him from the Hotel Palacio and they kidnap him. So this is pretty cool. So here you you have some interesting quips too. Don't tell me where we're going. I love the fact that we're getting quips when this guy, who's not a spy, he's an advertising exec, these guys come up to him with a gun. You think he'd be in shock, yet he's able to come up with some of these quips yeah he's very calm right so so here he is in, in between these two guys in the back seat don't tell me where we're going surprise me it's almost the exact same scene and the dialogue is even similar as thornhill quips here that he left friends at a bar and they're going to be wondering about him and could they just stop off at a drugstore so he could make a call <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah right okay sure so then he quips this is like something he says something like this is a kidnapping right or something like that so he's like, wow, very much like Bond says on Honor Majesty's Secret Service to his captors as they force him at gunpoint into the middle of back seat between the two goons. And, and Bond says, and where's the party this time? And the goon says, <laughs> you have an appointment. And then Bond says, business or pleasure? They, they're silent. He goes, oh, mystery tour, eh? <laughs> <laughs> this is all exactly the same freaking scene. It's very, very similar, and it's, but to me, the difference in it is that Bond is a spy who's been trained to deal with situations like this. Roger, yeah. I'm just amazed he's able to pull that off, because, I mean, if you think about it, you're in a restaurant, and all of a sudden, a guy's got a gun in your back, yeah. and they put you in, in the back of a car. Yeah. Are you are you going to be quipping with them? He's very I calm. Mean, very calm. Yeah. Which is amazing. Sure, he's a New York uh, Mad- Madison Avenue uh, advertising exec, but still. Anyway, the two scenes are remarkably similar and certainly easy to think that North by Northwest scene influenced on Her Majesty's scene. Strangely, <laughs> there is a connection between Hitchcock and James Bond. In a Variety.com article in 2015, Why We Never Saw Alfred Hitchcock's Bond and three more lost 007 movies. It's clear that Fleming actually sent a telegram to Hitchcock in 1959 to see if he was interested at all in directing the very first Bond film, which they planned at that time to be Thunderball. This was the year North by Northwest came out, and it appeared that Hitchcock did not want to make another spy movie so close after this one. So, holy crap. That, yeah, really? That would have been a different <laughs> spin. That would have been a different spin on Bond, I think. And the article suggests Hitchcock probably would have stuck very close to the Fleming novels. Though, <laughs> as you and I recall, The 39 Steps, he basically read the book and basically threw it out and made up his own story. <laughs> so I, I don't know how close it would be. But anyway, this, this is what the article said. I didn't know that uh, Hitchcock was approached. So anyway, we feel confident that Hitchcock, though never directing a Bond film, 
had influence on Bond films, and this certainly is one of them. And Peter Hunt, who directed on Her Majesty's Secret Service, most certainly was a Hitchcock fan or a very aware of Hitchcock's work because Hitchcock was a hot director. Yeah, back back then, if you're Peter Hunt, you're gonna you're gonna be you knew uh, you're gonna know exactly what Hitchcock was doing. Yeah. All right, so let's get back to the to the movie. Yeah. So Thornhill's captured. He's he's taken to a mansion which apparently belongs to a Mr. Townsend since there's a sign on the estate lawn. Yeah, now but, this estate that he's pulling into is the old Westbury Gardens in Westbury, Long Island. In the movie, they say it's Glen Cove, but it's actually in Westbury. The interior shots were all done on set. You know, it's kind of like in a Bond movie, all doors <laughs> open to Pinewood Studios. <laughs> yeah, the other right? side's Pinewood Studios. Yeah. But also, when you're watching this, notice how similar this scene feels to the scene in the 39 Steps when Hannah goes to Professor Jordan's house. Oh, yeah. They're greeted by a maid, they're guests at the house, and both Hannah and Thornhill are led into a library where they meet the antagonist. So they're in this gorgeous library set, and it is a beautiful set. There, Thornhill meets Philip Van Damme, who Thornhill thinks is Mr. Townsend, and he's the mastermind of this local organization, an organization that not much is known about. It kind of sounds familiar, right? Spectre, yeah, really. Spectre, Quantum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in this scene, again, what we'd like to point out is the fabulous camera angles in these shots. Hitchcock knew how to, where to put a camera. Yeah. I love it because a lot of times it's eye-level stuff you see in films. And here he's got these angles that are terrific. Some are shot from slightly below eye level, like when Leonard played by Martin Landau, enters the room, and when the wife enters, some are shot from above, like the scene right after the wife comes in and Thornhill and Van Damme and Leonard are talking. I mean, there's, it's creative lighting. It's just absolutely perfect set. All the props, all the books, everything is spectacular. Well, what I, what I love about it is the way he shoots this is it really puts you not at ease. There's a discomfort with the way you're looking at it. Yeah, good point. And the the angles you're seeing, it's like, I'm not used to seeing things this way. Yeah, I, I think that's the magic of Hitchcock is he does that kind of stuff, and it creates he creates tension in a short amount of time. Also, you can see in Octopussy some of the similar angles, like when Magda's getting off the boat and Bond is looking down on her, there's this dramatic angle down there. Or when the balloon's coming in by Khan's by Khan's uh, castle or residence or whatever you want to call that, and the shot there and it, it kind of has a Hitchcock feel because mm-hmm. the angle's not that how we normally see things. So an interesting thing here is that Leonard, played by Martin Landau, as you said, he later plays Rollin Hand as part of the IMF team in Mission Impossible TV show. Yeah, he show was good at that role from 1966 to 1969. And on that team, he was the man with a million faces and the world's greatest impersonator. So <laughs> this is kind of cool that here he is in this movie. Yep, absolutely. And it's it's this is his, only a second movie. So, Martin Landau's uh, second? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Hey, cool. Also notice the way Van Damme holds his cigarette. It's in, in very unusual ways, much like Blofeld, played by Telus Savalas, did in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Wait, it's, wait, wait. You said how, how Blofeld holds holds cigarette when, when, and, and Van Damme. Van Actually, Damme. when I watched this, I thought there was something funny about the cigarette holding. Yeah. But it wasn't the way that Van Damme was holding it. 
that caught my eye and made me think of Blofeld. It was that henchman Licht, or however you say it, yeah. L-I-C-H-T, uh, played by Robert Ellenstein. He enters the room. As Van Damme walks out, he enters the room, and he's holding this cigarette, and it's a little bit different. So when Van Damme's cigarette isn't held between the two fingers, like you see people, you know, kind of fork it like that, the lit end is on the middle, the inside of his hand. So you would assume it would be able to catch any ash that yeah, fa- might fall off the end. When Blofeld has the lit end of the cigarette, he's got it outside of his hand. It's not The lit end is outside of his hand, mm-hmm. um, and he kind of holds it almost like a pointer. And it really looks odd. But when Lick comes in, as, as Van Damme leaves that room, Lick comes in and he's holding that cigarette with the lid end out with a closed hand. And to me, that was very, very much like how Blofeld held the cigarette in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, so keep an eye on the cigarettes in this scene. And really, in all the scenes, they're kind of interesting the way they always play this off. But anyway, take a look in this scene in the cigarette part. It's really uh, interesting to see. Here you got Thornhill again. Pretty, <laughs> he's, he's been kidnapped at gunpoint. He's in the mansion. And you're going to hear more quips by Thornhill here. Yeah, it's like, okay, I don't care that you kidnapped me. I'm just going to go ahead and quip. Yeah, he doesn't understand yet, or he's very cool. I don't know. He's indicating, like, here that he's got tickets to the theater that night, and he's looking forward to it, and he should be get, he should be going. So he starts walking out of the room. Yeah, let me leave, guys. I know you brought yeah. me here under gunpoint. <laughs> Either he's really cool, or he has no idea the kind of trouble he's in. Maybe Bond-like in the scene. If he's cool. Here he learns that Van Damme knows a lot about the guy he thinks he is, Kaplan. Again, remember, he think, they think this guy's Kaplan. They talk about all the hotels, which I thought was pretty cool, that this guy, Kaplan, has been in from Pittsburgh, Boston, Detroit, New York, and he's due to go to the Ambassador East in Chicago and then to Rapid City, South Dakota. Their organization seems pretty damn efficient, and again, they think Thornhill is Kaplan. Well, what I love about that is you, I mean, he's meeting these people for the first time and they're telling him all about his backstory. Yeah. And he's got to be thinking this Kaplan guy's kind of gets around. Yeah. And, but of course he's thinking, Hey, I'm not Kaplan. He keeps telling them he's not Kaplan. Right. The set again, like we said, is gorgeous. There's striking woodwork, beautiful bookshelves, fine furnishings. I mean, the mansion looks like, like a mansion should look. And Robert F. Boyle was the production designer noted for this film as well as Filler on the Roof and Marnie. He also worked with Hitchcock on the 1942 movie Saboteur and the 1963 film The Birds. Van Damme says his secretary admires Kaplan's methods. He wants to know how much Kaplan knows about his arrangements. But, you know, Van Damme doesn't know that this guy's not Kaplan, and Thornhill can't convince them that he's not Kaplan. So Thornhill's not cooperating, and... Hey, how how can he? He's not the guy. He's right? not the guy. So I can't tell you what you want to know because I'm not him. So Van Dam wants Kaplan eliminated. Now in back to the thirty nine steps, when Professor Jordan wanted Hannay to kill himself when he wouldn't cooperate, Hannay said no. But in either case, this victim must go, whether yeah. it's Thornhill or Hannay. Yeah. And, again, they don't want to just shoot him right then and there because it might, maybe it would look suspicious because him being murdered inside this house. So, right? So they bond-like concoct a, 
a more elaborate way of killing the guy. Well, we, we before you even get into that, one of the reasons that they can't kill him there is this isn't their house. It's not even their house, right? It actually is Townsend's house that they're in, and Townsend's right. away for a month. We find out later. So anyway, they they, they pour bourbon down his throat, <laughs> and they set up a scene where he's driving and will crash off a cliff. And the night scene is artfully lighted with waves crashing up over the cliff. It's it's really a beautiful scene. The setup is great. But very Bond-like, he pushes the bad guy out of the car and he drives drunk for a while, of course avoiding the cliff. And he's noticed by the police who pursue him and he's taken into police custody. So now, he, this, he's this safe scene, for a moment there, this right? Scene, this scene, though, to me is a little weird. I mean, it's like, okay, they're trying to put some humor in here, I guess. The way he's driving, but you know the way now. Maybe back then you would think that way. Oh, yeah, let's have some, some drinks. Let's drive drunk. Now I just it feels really dated to me. The way they this scene doesn't hold up in my mind. Yeah, I for mean today it, they definitely try to introduce some comedic elements here because his facial expressions and so on because he's driving drunk. Of course, he didn't choose to drive drunk. I mean, he he was forced behind the wheel and whatever, and he's trying to you know get help. Anyway, he gets saved a little bit by the police here because they take him in into jail and they don't release him until the next morning. And the guy's following him once they saw him getting followed by the police and stopped by the police. They thought, okay, we better... They thought he was going to drive off a cliff, not get caught yeah. by the police. Yeah, but they did follow him and, yeah, okay, he got caught by the police. We're backing out now because we don't want to be involved in the police here. So anyway, they have this comedic aspect to it with the facial expressions, which... It's almost vaudeville-ish. I mean, it's kind of yeah. silly. But, hey, they have a short hearing, which is amazing, where Thornhill sticks to his story about being kidnapped and having bourbon forced into him. And he has an attorney with him to assist him in this, though. So the judge decides, okay, well, we'll send detectives out to the house where he said, where Thornhill said he was he was brought you know, to investigate, to see if there's yeah, any... Out to the mansion. Yeah any truth to his story so but by the way the guy who plays the chief in get smart the tv show edward platt is thornhill's lawyer so yeah i love how they weave TV people into all these different spy movies yeah and spy shows yeah now now the hearing scene that you're talking about with that he has were introduced to thornhill's mother who's played wonderfully by jesse royce landis Yes. Now, she was supposed to be Roger's mother, but she was only eight years older than Cary Grant in real life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, in, and in the movie, she doesn't look that much older. So No. But, but she does a great job. She's they, well, then, And they have just such great comedic interplay between the two of them, too. It's great. Yeah. So, of course, the detectives go to the house because uh, it just sent them. Nothing's the same in the house as Thornhill's narrative. The liquor cabinet that he said had, had all the liquor he has books in it now. There's no stains on the couch from the bourbon. The woman and the maid pretend that he was drunk the night before at the party and say he he was supposed to take a cab, call a cab. Her husband, Lester Townsend, she says, is at the United Nations addressing the General Assembly. So, of course, the police don't buy his story. He was drunk and in a stolen car, so <laughs> not good for Thornhill. Yeah, exactly. Now, there's actually a, a line in this movie that when I first heard it, I'm like, two dollars where's this coming from so as they're getting ready to leave roger's mother says to him roger pay the two dollars right now according to the writer 
Ernest Lehman, this was a takeoff of an old vaudeville skit by William Eugene Howard. In the in the skit, a man spits in the subway platform and is arrested, and he p- refuses to pay the two dollar fine. <laughs> so his brother, who's a lawyer, says, "Pay the two dollars." The next time you see him, he's in jail. <laughs> the lawyer again says, "Pay the two dollars," and it goes on. I mean, it's a skit that goes on for a while. Yeah. They integrated this skit the first time that I'm aware of in the movie Zigfield Follies in 1945. But in this case, the roles were reversed, and the client's telling the lawyer to pay the, the $2. So it's a line that seemed a little weird, but if you understand the homage they were paying to Eugene and Willie Howard, it, it kind of fits. Okay, cool. All right, so back to the movie. He goes back to the hotel, and he looks up George Kaplan because George Kaplan is supposed to be at this hotel. And he they think he's George Kaplan. Yeah, and they think he's Kaplan. So he's like, who is this guy? I'm going to look him up. He finds that George Kaplan has checked out. He hasn't answered the phone or slept in the bed for two days. He wants his mother to get the key to the room, 796, and she does. They enter the room. They see his suitcase. They see clothes. They find a picture of men, one of whom is Van Damme, who he still thinks is Townsend. They find out no one has actually seen Kaplan at the hotel, not the maid, not the valet. He gets a call in the room, and it's one of the goons who is calling. Yeah, so Kaplan supposedly hasn't been there for two days, and the goon just happens to call. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, the goon happens to call. Because they're, you know, they want to make sure he's, if he's there or whatever. I don't know. So he answers the phone. He's kind of thinking, eh, should I? And he does. He answers the phone. And he finds out it's one of the goons. And it, he finds out it's he's calling from the lobby. So he and his mother quickly get out of there. They're going down the elevator as the other elevator comes up. And it's the two goons on it. So they go back down and follow him. And he escapes, though, into a cab. And the killers pursue him in another cab. And he's going to the United Nations General Assembly building. Now, this is kind of cool. The United Nations building. The establishing shots of the UN building were taken from the exterior. But all the interior shots were taken at the studio. All doors leave to Pinewood Studios. Yeah, and Hitchcock had to clandestinely shoot the outside shots because of UN security. <laughs> I love the way he does this, too. He parks a truck across the street, and he's got the VistaVision camera in it, which isn't super small, right? Mm-hmm. And he's going to shoot Thornhill walking up the steps. So they're inside the truck shooting across. So if you see this shot, you see Thornhill go up the steps, mm-hmm. but it's taken from this truck across the street. And it kind of reminds me of in Goldfinger. Remember when they were oh, shooting shoot Fort, Fort Knox? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's they're, they're that scene with that. And they were told that they had to, I don't remember. I think the it was like 500-foot clearance or something. Or... No, it was, no, they were supposed oh, it was to higher shoot than from like 3,000 feet yeah, yeah. or something like that. I don't remember the actual number, yeah, right? Yeah. But they ended up filming from like three 300 feet, yeah. breaking the rules. So, again, you can't film here, or if you film here, you've got to do it like this. And these guys both thumb their nose at whatever their rules were. Yeah, just... Pretty much the same, yeah. Anyway, he gets to the United Nations building. He asks for Lester Townsend, and because he believes that that's the guy that he just saw, it was really Van Dam. So Townsend comes out and talks to him, and but it's not Van Dam. It's not the guy he thinks it is. Not Van Dam. He's like, who the hell are you, basically? Anyway, he's talking to him, and someone throws a knife into Townsend's back. <laughs> well, while, <laughs> while Hill's talking to him. And Thornhill takes the knife out of his back. Of course, there's a photographer there, and he takes a picture. 
<laughs> of course, it's in the newspapers. Now he's wanted for murder. The thing to note about this scene is that when Thornhill is talking to Townsend, we see Townsend grimace and start to fall because we're looking from the camera angle at, at Townsend's face. Yeah, we don't know what happened. Right. Someone throws a knife into Townsend's back. Sure. This is the thing. It's really quite possible that Hitchcock invented this type of reveal because the person speaking to this person who's getting knifed does not realize what happened yet until the person that is struck starts to react or falls over. And we don't know either because we're That's seeing right. it from the same angle as, as in this case, Thornhill. That's right. So it's seeing it from a point of view almost of the the person who's watching the person fall into them or whatever. Yeah, you so don't know, yeah, we, we don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. Does. So that's that's what's going on here. And if you recall, again, when we did the 39 steps, when Anna Smith comes into the room stumbling and talking to Hanny, telling him something, we see her face on. And then she falls, and Hanny and we discover at the same time. Yeah, that, it's like all of a sudden she has a knife why in her did back. She fall and then oh, there's a knife in her back. Yeah. So Hitchcock may have invented this whole reveal about this. And you actually see the same kind of reveal in Thunderball when Largo gets a harpoon in the back as he's facing us. And well, remember in Octopussy too, Tom? There's Yeah, I was going to say, you see this in Octopussy. So the knife throwers, they, in the pre-title, 009's getting pursued by uh, Mishka and Grishka. Right. And eventually one of them gets this knife into his back. He falls in the river. We see him get hit. He crawls out of the river and into the residence of the British ambassador mm-hmm. where there's a face-on shot. He crashes through those doors. Remember those doors? Yeah, he's crashing through the French doors. Crash open, only to reveal to the ambassador and the others there that he's got a knife in his back. Yeah, so another reveal. So definitely Hitchcock has impacted a lot of films that have used this same kind of reveal technique. And yeah, now you see, you actually see that in a lot of movies. So spy movies or not, where somebody oh, and they pick the knife up out of the out of the the, the dead body, yeah. and they get caught with the knife, and they were the innocent bystander or whatever. Yeah, but uh, pretty damn good knife throwers too. I mean, that, yeah, exactly. So that actually kind of brings me thinking back to the work by uh, Mishka and Grishka in Octopussy. So they were skilled with knives and throwing knives and oh, stuff. Yeah. Is that did they? create those guys thinking of this scene where the guy throws the knife and uh, kills off the real Townsend. So he escapes, he flees the building and the camera angle here is, is fabulous. It looks like they shot it from the roof of the UN building. I mean, it's fascinating. You watch this whole thing unfold way down below. You see this little guy moving around who's Thornhill and he gets into a cab. It's a unique and intriguing shot and it really adds to the mystery of this entire film. Just this one shot. It's terrific. So the scene cuts a, to a sign, and we could all see it's, it says something like United States Intelligence Agency. And there are people around a table, and they're looking at a newspaper with, of course, Thornhill's picture on the front page with the knife in the guy's back, diplomat slain at UN. The paper actually is dated November 25th, 1958. It's the Evening Star. Now, we don't know so, who they- So in the 39 steps, yeah. Hannah's picture's all over the papers. And now in this one, Thornhill's picture is all over the papers. Yeah. In this one, you could believe it got out that quickly. In the third night steps, it was hard to believe it got out that quickly. But Yeah. Well, and in this one, they do show him with the knife. In the 39 steps, they just had his picture. Yeah. So we don't know who these people are sitting around the table discussing 
Thornhill slash Kaplan's predicament. Thornhill's claiming that Mr. Townsend tried to kill him the night before. One of the men asks, how can he have been mistaken for George Kaplan when Kaplan doesn't exist? They claim that maybe Van Damme's men grabbed him thinking he was Kaplan, which of course... Which is exactly what happened. Yeah. Apparently, this agency had created a false Kaplan as a decoy to protect their real agent. And it seems to be working well, they think. Now, wow, this is really good. And they do not intend to protect Mr. Thornhill here. The fictitious George Kaplan must continue as the agent hot on Van Damme's trail. So that's the concept. They created this fictitious agent, George Kaplan, who is seemingly hot on the trail of Van Damme. And that's why Van Damme is trying to get him. So this all becomes clear in this little shot here. And they can't disclose that Kaplan is a fictitious agent at this point. So they can't go protect Thornhill. All this talk of the intelligence agency creating this fictitious spy that doesn't exist or this person who's going to kind of throw off the enemy, this actually happened in real life. The most famous incident of this was called Operation Mincemeat. That was the British effort to throw the Germans off of the pending invasion of Sicily. I mean, this. Now, yeah, we actually talked about this one a bit in the real world podcast we did. Yeah, we did. We, we actually talked talk quite a bit about it there. And it's really an, a fascinating thing. Look that up on, on Google. Uh, this was, anyway, Operation Mincemeat. They, what they did is they dumped a body into the Mediterranean that was made to seem like a British pilot. And they planted documents on the body and his briefcase and everything with receipts and all kinds of plans and stuff. Oh, yeah, they did it up well. Yeah, that implied that the invasion was going to be in Greece and Sardinia. So this is real-life stuff here. And here Hitchcock is actually doing it in the movie. And the movie... Taking, taking that concept of somebody being created that doesn't really exist. That's really cool. Yeah. So the story is already well known into the 50s when Hitchcock is making this movie and certainly, we think, inspired the premise of this film. So you got to look at this. Here's the other interesting thing. Where did Operation Mincemeat originate? Oh, I love this one. (laughs) You know where? The the mind of Ian Fleming. Yeah. Ian Fleming (laughs) was in British intelligence, remember. So Ian Fleming, oddly enough, helps inspire North by Northwest. And North by Northwest inspires a great deal of tone and style of the Bond films to come. Cool. Absolutely. Now, we also see something similar in The Bourne Identity. It's a little twist on it. Oh, yeah. But, so Jason Bourne, right, he doesn't remember who he is, but he finds that you know, he, he redials his phone and gets connected to the Hotel Regina in Paris. Mm-hmm. And he asks for Jason Bourne, and they said there was nobody here by that name. They then he's looking through the passports he has, and he sees the name John Michael Kane, and he asks, "How about John Michael Kane?" And this was really a cover name for Jason. Jason was a cover name as well, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the fictitious person. However, once Bourne disappeared, and they weren't sure that what happened to him, they thought he was dead. The CIA had put out a backstory. They set up with the hotel that said that John Michael Caine was killed in an accident on a motorway. So they actually said, okay, this person who doesn't really exist, John Michael Caine doesn't really exist. We now have a backstory on that person who doesn't exist. All right. I had one other thought on this. 
Hitchcock is a master of suspense. Yeah. And one of the ways he does it, he has, there's a few different things, and we talk about this through throughout different podcasts, but one of the ways he created suspense was to clue the audience in sometimes on something that was important, but way before the characters in the movie know about it. So it keeps us guessing as the audience, when will the other characters know? Who knows about it and when? Mm. How will this get resolved? In fact, actually, we're going to talk about this a little bit in part two of this podcast when we talk about when does Eve know yeah. that Kaplan doesn't exist? Mm -hmm. And that suspense of us knowing something and waiting for the character to know it just heightens the scenes, heightens the suspense, and is one of the reasons Hitchcock was such a great master yeah, at suspense. And he blends that with the exact opposite, like we were just talking about with the reveal, where we don't know what's going on <laughs> until... Exactly. The character discovers it as well. So it's it's pretty interesting how he does both. Yeah, and really for the agency, what a perfect setup. Yeah. Right? You've got a guy, okay, we've been faking this one guy exists and renting hotel rooms in his name and stuff like that. But now we've got a body. I mean, a real person. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he may be denying that he's Kaplan, but everybody on the other side thinks he is. So what a great spot for this agency. Exactly, yeah. So, again, the head of this agency is Leo G. Carroll, who, strangely enough, later plays Mr. Waverly, the head of the Man From U.N.C.L.E. TV show in the 1960s, 64 to 68, one of the many spy shows developed after the success of the Bond films. So yeah, we yeah, have a lot was, of connections his, here. Yeah, there is. And this was the sixth Hitchcock film that he did. But the interesting thing to me is his name. So his name here, they call him the Professor. Mm-hmm. In The Bourne Identity, there's the assassin who's going after Jason Bourne, the one who's talking about the headaches and everything. His name was the professor. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have Professor Jordan in The 39 Steps. Yeah. There's something about this name, the professor, in spy movies. Not sure I understand it, but it's there. Yeah, and they never say why uh, Leo G. Carroll here is called the professor. So Thornhill is, is heading to Chicago by train because he has to hide from everyone. As we saw in the 39 Steps and in many films to come, this is the double pursuit. Thornhill... Yeah, we've talked about this in, in, in a bunch of different podcasts. Yeah, yeah, Thornhill has the goons after him, Van Damme's goons after him, who want to kill him because they think he's Kaplan. And now he has the authorities after him who think he killed Townsend. So he can't go to the police for help. He can't do anything except now he's he's got to run away from both. And so you can't have an easy end to this conflict by going to the police and getting the help so you have this double pursuit so this this is in tons of movies this concept of a double pursuit and is very popular in the hitchcock movies he knows he's got to hide from everybody he knows kaplan is going to the ambassador east in chicago that's where he's going next they knew that already so for me i'm glad to see that chicago's in a spy movie so thornhill tries to buy a ticket to the train station but there is none the clerk recognizes him we think, and calls the authorities or someone, but Thornhill catches on and leaves. He's gone. I didn't know if he was working for the bad guys or actually calling the well, police. Well, I mean, he, he had a picture of him there. Yeah. So I, I think it was the police that came down yeah, okay. for him. So right. uh, I think he was calling the police. Yeah. Now, actually, that actor was Ned Glass, and I'm just putting this in here because he's one of those guys that you've probably seen in him in a million things. He's got 229 credits in IMDb. 
His most famous role was probably Doc in West Side Story. Oh, okay. He usually played like a ticket agent or something like that. Mm-hmm. He was in the Mod Squad, Man from Uncle, Peter Gunn, a bunch of other shows. But he's just one of those guys that I saw him there. I'm like, wait, that's Ned Glass, and so I, I made a note of it. Oh, that's pretty and, cool. Yeah, I mean, he has it's, it's it's he's only on camera for I don't know 15 seconds or something, maybe 20 or whatever. But his facial expressions and everything else are pretty good. So yep. he, does, he does a good job. He's so, a real good character. Actually. All right, way to go, Ned. So Roger's on the train, and here he meets Eve Kendall, an industrial designer who protects him and tells the police that, hey, he went that way, or maybe he got off the train or whatever when they ask her, and she's already talked to him. So this is the beginning of an interesting relationship. The dialogue is terrific here. The train ride is terrific. This is 1959, keep in mind. The dining car, the sleeper car, and the interaction between Eve Kendall and Thornhill is played to perfection and very sexually suggestive. I mean, it's in-your-face suggestive. Uh, here he orders a Gibson, which I think is a what a gin martini with onions. So Eve really knows who he is. I mean, it's a nice face. She and there's this that, yeah. really suggestive conversation. Mm. He says, The moment I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I have no desire to make love to her. Who says things like that? <laughs> yeah. Right? In, especially in today's day and age. And then she comes back and says, What makes you think you have to conceal it? It's like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so Thornhill says, She might find the idea objectionable. But and he then says, Then again, she might not. Oh, uh, yeah, 1959. Okay. Not, this is this is really a very sexually flirting conversation. It's, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, this is big time. Now, I think in 1959, make love uh, had a, a little bit different meaning than it does today, but it's still very suggestive dialogue. Here. Wait, how no? How can make love have a well? You, you even look at 19 the 19 uh, whatever uh, year the It's a Wonderful Life came out and. Donna Reed is in her parlor when Jimmy Stewart shows up as George Bailey and her mother didn't like George Bailey and and she says who is it down there and she says it's George Bailey and she's George Bailey he's making violent love to me mother you tell him to go right back home and don't you leave the house either she says so I think it meant something different then I'm I know I'm thinking she was saying they were shacking up uh no I, I I don't yeah, know. Anyway, that's we'll, we'll have a whole podcast on what that means. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't. No, we won't. Uh, anyway, she set it up. They didn't sit at the same table in the dining car by accident. She set this up so that he would be seated with her. She gave the steward $5 to make sure that if he came in, that he brought him to her table. You know, they first met bumping into each other in the hallway. Yes, yeah. Right. So then all of a sudden she pays the steward five bucks to say, sit this guy next to me. Yeah. So oh, she's know, really, she's really going for it. Yeah. Thornhill's thinking, whoa. So he asks her straight out. Is that a proposition? <laughs> and he says, I never discuss love with an empty stomach. You've already eaten. But you haven't. But here's the thing. Look at her lips and read her lips. To me, they dubbed in discuss for the word make. So, <laughs> yep, you're right. Yeah. You're right. 
I've looked at this 10 times. I never make love on an empty stomach was changed to I never discuss love on an empty stomach. So they probably thought the original line was a little too racy for 1959. So Well, and the question cool. is, did they think that way? Did the uh, MPAA come back well, to the them censors, and say? Yeah, this, this, yeah. yeah, they got a lot of, away with a lot of stuff at the, the very last scene of the movie, too. They, they snuck yeah. in there. In Goldfinger, they needed to make a similar change, and they didn't do it. So if you remember when Bond is trying to stop the timer on the Bond, right, yeah. and, and, and then that other guy turns it off, and it stops at 007, yeah. when they actually filmed it and recorded Sean saying it, he makes the statement, three more clicks. Oh, yeah, three more and, clicks, and Goldfinger would have hit Peter yeah, or so, something. Or... So it was originally supposed to stop at three seconds, <laughs> and somebody got the idea, hey, it would look better if it was 007 seconds. They didn't do the dub, and it would have it would have been helpful at that point. But because they they'd already done they were done with Sean at this point, right? It was a pretty late change they made. But it's one where you can see, okay, it it works as an overdub in by Northwest. It would have worked as an overdub in Goldfinger, but they didn't do it. Yeah. Okay. Now and so it's it's just a little different difference in style. Now the other thing that this scene kind of brings to me is. The Bon Tatiana relationship in From Russia with Love. So again, they've got the train scene. They're in the train, yeah. just like we are here. A lot of there's, similarities there. Yeah, there's there's suggestive commentary between the two. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, the com- <laughs> the, the conversation <laughs> between Roger and Eve. Yeah, hard to beat that. <laughs> is much more uh, edgy than the conversations between Bond and Tatiana. Yet, at the time they came out, they were fairly edgy mm-hmm. in the Bond movie. It's just North by Northwest takes it one step higher. And three years before. Yep. So, anyway, she knows exactly who this guy is and that he's running from virtually everyone. She seems to be protecting him. He has a matchbook with his initials on it, R-O-T. And she asks what the O stands for, and he says, nothing. Ha, O equals zero equals nothing. Maybe. Well, his character in the story has been divorced twice. He's hanging out with his mother. He drinks a lot. Hey, maybe he is really a big zero. But I looked up some stuff here. Some some say that this is a reference to producer David O. Selznick, who also said the O stood for nothing. And I found a quote actually from Selznick himself. He said, quote, I have no middle name. I had an uncle whom I greatly disliked who was also named David Selznick. So in order to avoid any growing confusion between the two of us, I decided to take a middle initial and went through the alphabet to find one that seemed to give me the best punctuation and decided on O, unquote. This was supposedly written by Selznick himself, and it's supported by the IMDb references for the film. So Selznick produced several Hitchcock movies, not this one, but he produced... Rebecca in 1940, Spellbound in 45, and The Paradigm Case in 47. So there's some connection again there. So it's probably true. So yeah. she invites Thornhill to her drawing room, yeah. which was what? Uh, the E-car, yeah. room 3901. Yeah, who could forget? Uh, yeah, who could forget, right? <laughs> so she tells him about this unscheduled stop they just made and that the police were coming aboard. She hides him in the upper berth of her drawing room. Yeah, How cool. he fit there, I don't understand. Yeah, but wait. Solitaire and Live and Let Die fit just fine in the birth well, when yeah, they were either. I mean, 
Jane Seymour is a bit smaller. Oh uh, yeah, that, that that's true too. They they question her and she covers for him, and she hid him there by stealing the key for it from the porter. Yes, yeah, so and now you know she's kind of crafty. <laughs> she is, and just more of this racy talk. Why are you so good to me? Well, shall I climb up and tell you why? <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. That's just absolutely perfect. So right on the train, too, she invites him. She said, when you get to Chicago, it's not going to be that good, you running around the city and so on. So you stay in my hotel room, and, and I'll go look for Kaplan. But now it continues on the train, and there's more sexy talk. And she says to him. Well, wait. Know, actually, before you even get into that, Dan, I mean, so she's, st- she's telling him, hey, I'm going to stick my neck out even more for you. It's not just I'm going to hide, hide you. Yeah. I'm going to help you try to find this guy. Yeah, it's 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 weird because at this point we don't know what's up yet, and right. we're trying to figure her out. So yeah, she's she just hit him in the berth, and and so on, and, and the police came and boom, all that was fine. She covered for him again, and now she's saying that. But now you know they're in this embrace still in her drawing room, which is more kind of racy talk going on. So you know, she says to him, "Hey, you have good taste." <laughs> I like your flavor. Yeah, she says that. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And Eve saying about him being an ad- advertising exec and making people buy things that they don't need or don't want. You make women who hardly know you fall in love with you. To which he quips. I'm beginning to think I'm underpaid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, come on. That's a great line. Oh, man. This guy's pretty sharp. Hey, Dan, I used to work for you. How many times did I come to you and say, hey, I'm beginning to think I'm underpaid? (laughs) Only a couple of times. (laughs) Ah. Uh, This is a terrific match of powerful characters. Very powerful woman and a very confident gentleman. It kind of sounds familiar. (laughs) Ah. So she continues protecting him. And the porter even comes in to clean the berth. And she hides... Thornhill in the bathroom and tells the porter, uh, you know, clean everything, but don't clean the bathroom. So she returns the key, which she called a can opener at one point, to the porter saying, oh, I found this. And he's like happy to get it back. And meanwhile, he's hiding in the bathroom. And (laughs) here he finds her shaving brush, a tiny little shaving brush, and a tiny little razor. (laughs) You could see him. His face, the close-up on his face is great. <laughs> you see him, like, looking at it, holding this thing in his, this little thing in his hand. It looks, his hand looks gigantic. <laughs> I'm not sure where you're going with this one, Dan. <laughs> and he's, no, I'm just reporting. He, he's looking at it, and his face is, like, quizzical, like, oh. Ah. Eventually, the guy finishes cleaning up. She, he comes out. Yeah, so an important part here is that she steps out of the room while the porter's cleaning, and that's going to become important a little later because she does something while she's out in the hallway. Yeah. So here she comes back, and there's lots of kissing going on, and it's and, and hugging. and But at one point during the hug, if you notice, Tom, she's kind of looks away from him, unbeknownst to him. Yeah, kind of like, what am I doing? We, the viewer, we see it. Right. And it's like okay what's going on so the next scene you see a note is delivered to van damme and leonard and the note says quote 
what should I do with him in the morning? Eve. And my, you know, my oh. belief is she actually wrote that when she was in the hallway and gave it to the porter as yeah. he was leaving. There you go. And with when Roger was hiding in the bathroom. Yeah. So now we're thinking, wait a minute. She was just helping this guy. Now she's delivering a note to the enemy, basically, here, right? Well, and I love the way Hitchcock does it. Because you see the porter hand it to a hand. Yeah. But you don't know who the hand is initially. Yeah. And he slowly pulls back, and we see that it was Roland Hand. Oh, I mean... Leonard's hand. He's there <laughs> with Van Dam. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Rollin Hand. Yeah. You know? Martin Landau's yeah. character on Mission Impossible. I get it. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Whose hand is it? It's Rollin's hand. Okay. All right. Hey. All right. Actually, this shot is somewhat duplicated in From Russia with Love. When Karen Bay and Bond pick up Ben's in the train cabin, you see a gun at a door, and we wait a few seconds before it pulls back, showing us it's Karen and James. And so just like we talked about the way that Hitchcock develops suspense, we see something. We don't know what it is. It's a slow pullback before you see who's got the gun. Another reveal. Another reveal. <laughs> another way that Hitchcock uses that to generate suspense. So it's like, was she? who was she handing that note to? Yeah. I mean, with what we knew about the fact that there was no Kaplan, right? Yeah. Right. So here it is Van Damme and Leonard who get the note from Eve. Now we're thinking, what the hell is going on here? And we don't know. So now I do want to know how she gets the instructions in response to that. We never see that. No, because we don't know what the answer is to her question. Right. What do I do with him in the morning? Yeah, no. It's just all of a sudden. All, all of a sudden we see that it's morning and they're walking off the train. Roger's yeah. disguised as a porter. He's got the porter outfit on, and he's carrying their bags. And she's walking out with him. And she tells the police she hasn't seen him. So now she's covering for him. Wait, she just delivered this note saying, what do I do with him in the morning? Now she's covering for him. He paid off the porter, as it turns out, for the uniform. And because you could see, you could see yeah. them questioning the, the porter, the police. And he later, after the police leave, he's counting the money. <laughs> yeah, he, now that, that yeah. actually reminded me a lot of In the 39 Steps, another yeah. Hitchcock movie, yeah. when Hanny pays the milkman oh, to yeah. get his uniform to escape. Yeah. So, so you got somebody buying somebody's uniform to escape. Yeah. And in Silver Streak, which is one of my favorite comedies, yeah. it Richard Pryor's character has Gene Wilder's character put on shoe polish on his face. He's got this hat. They've got him holding a boom box, you know, one of those portable, big portable radio things. And they're trying to make Wilder's character look hip and black, and it just doesn't work. It's a hilarious scene, but in this case, they use the costume to get on the train. Ah. Where in North by Northwest, Roger uses the costume to get off the train. So it's a little bit of a reversal, but it's a great scene in a really funny movie, if you haven't seen it. And as a bonus, Richard Keel plays a big henchman in... Silver Streak in 1976, <laughs> the year before The Spy Who Loved Me came out. Yeah, 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 that's good. It's the same same thing happening here. Another Hitchcock movie. So anyway, they get out and he gets to go change into the, he goes into the men's room at the train station. And the, the concept here is he's going to change into his suit, get out of the porter's uniform. Which is a good thing because the police were looking for a guy in a porter's uniform. Yes, exactly. 
and she was going to theoretically be calling Kaplan and getting instructions as to where to meet. Now she's calling the hotel because they knew he's at the ambassador hotel in Chicago, which is where they just arrived. And she was going to call the ambassador hotel to find out where Kaplan could meet Thornhill. Okay. Now, so, not really, right? That's the theory. Well, well, that's the theory. Right? Well, that's but, what but Roger wait, thinks but, she's but, doing. Uh, meantime, he's in the bathroom, and I want to point this out again because the tiny little razor appears. <laughs> <laughs> you love that little razor. Look, there's a guy shaving next to him. Yeah, with a regular size razor, he's shaving his yeah. face, and then Roger's there with his tiny little razor shaving his face. The guy's looking at him like, the hell? And yeah. uh, the, the police do come in there, and they don't notice him because he's got shaving cream all over his face. But right. anyway, the, the razor does make another appearance here. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out. So back <laughs> to the good. phone, right? Okay, She's... so back to the phone. So we, the audience, know there's no Kaplan because there was that scene that when we first were introduced to the professor where they said that they made this Kaplan guy right, up. Right, the United States Intelligence Agency. Yeah. Right. But, but we don't know if she knows there's no Kaplan. Yeah, does she know? That's my question. Does she know there's no Kaplan? And we really don't know the answer to that. At this point in the movie, we, we don't know the answer to that. Right. So, so But she's now, on a phone here Yeah, but when calling she goes Kaplan, to, right? When she goes to make the phone call, she's not really calling Kaplan. She can't be a, calling Kaplan. How, how, you know, okay, she could call the hotel and try to catch up with the guy. But really, if you look at what's going on with that bank of phones, yeah, she's in one little phone booth, and then a couple booths ahead of her is Leonard. Okay. And she's getting the instructions from Leonard. You think so? And th Yeah, because they both hang up at the same time. They, they both walk out. Leonard leaves a second or two before she does. Yeah. And so that's what she got, and that's how she got the instructions to tell Roger what happens next. Okay. All right. See, I'm, I wasn't clear there that she was, I, we don't know for sure she was talking to Leonard. So I, I'm, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe she's talking to a guy she thinks is Kaplan and giving him instructions. But if she really was talking to Leonard, she knows his voice because they've been hanging together for yeah, ever. She would have, she so. would have known. Yeah. She would have known that was Leonard. Yeah. If she was talking to him. Right. But in any case, so I mean, the question still is to me, how much does she know? And we don't know how much she knows. All right, so Ro Roger comes out of the bathroom. They're going to meet up, and he says to her, did you get Kaplan? Yeah, and she says, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she gives him specific directions and instructions for getting on a bus in Chicago and going towards Indianapolis and getting off at, at Prairie Stop at Highway 41 to meet Kaplan. And he's like, and well, she how, how's he going to know who I am? Kaplan, she says, uh, he'll be there at 3.30. He'll know who you are. You made the Chicago papers, too. Yeah. So, Okay, this is it. She looks tense here, though. She and, does. And she maybe, does she know what she's doing and where she's sending them exactly or not? We really don't know that in the film yet. She looks distraught. And as he walks away, she says, you got to get going. As he walks away, she's kind of blinking her eyes at him, like, yeah. sadly. And we think, What's going to happen? And we're going to see what's going to happen in one of the most exciting and most famous scenes in movie history, the crop duster scene. This has been Tom Pizzotto. And Dan Silvestri. From spymovienavigator.com. We hope you enjoyed part one of our Cracking the Code of North by Northwest. Please listen to part two of this discussion, and be sure to tell your friends about our show if you like it.